Welcome to this week's episode of That Brooklyn Film Show. Today, we take a dive into the creative mind of Japanese auteur Satoshi Kon. Satoshi Kon was born in Hokkaido, Japan in 1963. Kon started off as a manga artist before transitioning to animation. As an animator, he garnered a reputation for his unique style, creating films that mix dreams with reality. So, I've been a fan of Satoshi Kon's work for a couple years now. I think I first saw Perfect Blue in roughly 2011-2012. As someone who is first introduced to his films this past week, what is your initial take on watching his movies? Yeah, um, I I loved his movies. I think all four of them, it's very sad that he passed away so young because I think he had so much to offer the world in terms of his unique vision when it comes to film, in particular animation, because I feel like animation is such a under-credited art form. Like, I, I think a lot of people just think animation and think children, when animation has so much to offer. And I feel like he knew that and he did that with his films. Um, each of them were very different from one another, but also very similar, if that makes sense. Like, they were all tied together because you could tell, like, from his mind that you could see that in his films. I actually wanted to watch Paprika and that kind of lended itself to doing a deep dive in, on Satoshi Kon because that was one of his, the first films I've heard of from him. I've heard of Perfect Blue before in relation to Black Swan, but that was a few years ago, so it hadn't really crossed my mind. And then recently, um, I heard about Paprika again, and I was like, oh, let's watch Paprika. Um, and then it was like, why not just, you know, watch all his watch movies. All of his movies. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think, yeah, he's an amazing filmmaker. And again, I know we're going to deep dive into um, all of his films, but thinking of Perfect Blue and the fact that it was supposed to be live action and the fact that he had a pivot to animation, I think was like one of the best things that probably could have happened because again, I just feel like the animation medium gave him so much space to play with ideas that you can't necessarily complete within live action. And when we talk about certain films, we could talk about maybe like a live action counterpart that's very similar and why maybe what he did worked better than what was the live action, even if the live action was good. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what always attracted me to his work. I would say that he was personally my favorite animation director because of his unique style of directing. What he does really well to me is play, because in film, you know, you have beginning, middle, and end, and then you have the idea of like, this is the story, it goes forward. I think that he takes bits and pieces from the beginning, middle, and end. He kind of mixes them around, and he plays with the general concept of film. And I think in order to do that, that shows that you have a really good understanding of the traditional medium, mm -hmm. because in his films, we notice that a lot of his films are like homages to filmmaking. And it shows that this man was a like a, like a, give me a second. What's the word I'm looking for? Like someone who's like a huge fan of something. Well, oh, I know what you're talking like, you know, about. Like when Quentin Tarantino was a film, like a film, so like, like stuff like that. Lover, the cinephile. A cinephile, okay. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, after watching his films, you notice that a lot of his movies are homages to filmmaking in general. And showing that he's a huge cinephile shows that he has an understanding of film that that allows him to play with the conventions of it. And as we dive into his films, we're going to talk about the different conventions because I don't want to spend a lot of time just like speaking about um, 
his overall style before we dive into the movies because i think as we dive into the movies we're going to get an understanding of them as we speak about them but just in general i think that what makes him great is that he had the ability to not just play with it but then also use a medium that gave him the perfect format to play with these films because i i think he's one of those directors if he did do live action he would have been very successful at it as well because he just had a really good vision he was a really good writer as well because he wrote a lot of his movies but as a person who um is also into filmmaking i think that he is an example of what someone can do to put their vision into the medium as well as anyone else i could think of so we're going to dive into his first film which is perfect blue which came out in 1997. before perfect blue he was an animator for tv shows and stuff like that so perfect blue was his first foray into filmmaking for his own work Perfect Blue is based on a book called Perfect Blue, A Complete Metamorphosis. The synopsis for Perfect Blue is, A pop singer gives up her career to become an actress, but she slowly goes insane when she starts being stalked by an obsessed fan and what seems to be a ghost of her past. So, personally for me, Perfect Blue has been a film that essentially, I want to say changed my idea of animated films, but it was pretty much the first non-Ghibli animated film that I've seen and you know you watch Ghibli films and stuff like that they tend to have a vibe that are a little bit more like family oriented and stuff like that and they have great themes like Ghibli films have really great themes but this one was a little bit more a little bit different because it was more from the psychological approach and that's not something that you often see in animation animated films so I think that Perfect Blue spoke to me a lot because it was it taught me that the animation genre can be more than just for children. So how do you feel about it? Um, I I don't think that it taught me that the animation genre can just be more than for children, but I also think I was introduced to it later than, later was, than yeah. you were. So I've probably seen, you know, more animation geared towards adults. I think but I do think animation gets stuck again in that family friendly category a lot. Um, but it can do a lot more. And I think, you know, I think of anime because I watch a lot of anime and a lot of anime isn't geared towards children. A lot of anime is geared towards adults. So I think that's kind of where I got my introduction to that. Um, but this one in particular, I think this one is more so than some anime grounded in kind of like a reality um, that is like this could easily or not easily, but this could translate into a live action and it would make sense in a live action but i think what he's able to do with the animation that it would have been very different in a live action film yeah no i definitely agree with that i think the fact that he uses animation allows mm -hmm. him to play with the psychological elements that is tougher to do in live action films so one of his techniques often has to do with editing and match cuts and everything like that where he'll show it's, it's like such a visual thing it's hard to describe in a podcast mm -hmm. but he'll show like someone in a room and then he'll cut to a close-up of their face and then pull back, back and show them that they're in a studio and you're thinking to, but the dialogue is still continuing on as the dialogue that they were in their room mm -hmm. so she might be saying oh hey where are we going to someone who's in a room with her then when it cuts to a close-up of her and pulls back she's talking to someone else and they're like oh we're about to go to the store and it's like, wait, is she talking to this person or that person? And then it kind of makes you wonder, like, what is real and what isn't? And that's tougher to do in um, live action because it's harder to get those match cuts and 
when not with the actual camera versus when it's drawn. And then a lot of his um other elements which create psychological trauma and stuff like that is like him playing with like more like ghostly images and stuff like that. So I think that um he in general we're again talking about the breadth of his work, but he in general has a very unique style that creates a I don't want to say confusing because I wasn't really necessarily confused, but it makes you question what is and isn't real. And in the case of Perfect Blue, which is about a woman who is, like the book says, a metamorphosis. She's transforming from someone who was a pop idol, which in Japanese culture is someone who is more like innocent and is seen as like a childish image. She like plays to her fans as like this goody two shoes kind of woman but then she makes a change to like take control of her sexuality and all this other stuff to become a more to be more of what she wants to do she wants to act and in order to act she has to let go of the image that she developed as a pop idol so the main character's name is Mima and when she makes that change you start to notice that there's psychological like trauma going on in her because it's not just about what it's not just about her internal change it's about the way the world perceives her change and that's what she's having a hard time with yeah it's almost like if you want to compare it to something i guess in like american culture of kind of when you have disney stars and these disney stars are you know they're kids uh kid stars and they wear purity rings and they do all of those things especially when we were growing up that was very prevalent um and then they go on to act in an adult role or make music that's more mature and people bash them for that because they can't separate this idea of the child that they knew and the adult that they are as to the the same person. They're always like trying to box them into, well, this is that Disney star that I knew growing up. So they have to stay this innocent, childish person forever. And again, hate doing this, but I do agree where I see that it's like become so much more prevalent. I think now a lot of the themes because you remember the scene, there's a scene in the movie where the her main stalker or her main stalker that, you know, like frames her between his like thumb and his, the finger next to her. Yeah. And he's like carrying her in his hand. And it's just like she is this like avatar for him to project whatever he thinks she's supposed to be onto her. And he doesn't really know her. But he thinks because she sees he sees her perform that she is who he thinks she is in his head. And I think that's very prevalent now, especially with like Instagram and TikTok and all these other different social media things that you're people do that where they're like try they project who they think the person is onto them and you don't feel like you have boundaries. Like I just saw a video the other day of um some fans in front of Justin Bieber's house. And he's like, this is where I sleep. This is where I come home to. Like, you can't just be out here. And she's like, yeah, I understand. And at the end, she still asked him to give him her a hug. And it's just like, these are people. And I think that this, this movie kind of talks about, like, people aren't able to separate the idea of their idol and the person they truly are. It's just like, they're only your idol. They're only, you know, this innocent person that you see. So for her stalker, when she becomes more mature, um, it's not comfortable for him. He has to blame the people around her. And she also is feeling pressured by these people to, you know, go further and further. And maybe she's not necessarily happy with everything she does. But it, again, also goes to show, like, how you put someone on a pedestal 
and you can't expect them to stay who you think they are, who you're projecting them to be forever. People are not, you know, your projection. People are people, even celebrities and even idols or however are still people. You got, you got to the point where the stalker didn't even think she was the real person. He thought she was like a imposter because he was like, my Mima would never do this. It's like you said, when he framed her, it's almost like he froze this woman in time and is like, this is like an age. She, she wasn't a person. She was a concept. And to him, like, she was like this ageless concept of a perfect idol. And the fact that she was an actual human being who had like incentives and change, wanted to change and do different things with her lives to him was so far fetched. He was like, that's not even, this is not even Mima. This is someone who is an imposter of Mima. So I think that, um, that's another thing. You, this movie has a lot of, um, parallels to modern days, like with social media and stuff, like you were saying, like, I think of the situation with like Chloe Bailey, when she was going through her whole, um, like trauma of like people coming after her because she wanted to express herself a little, not even like a lot, a little bit more. And people were like, oh, you're doing too much and blah, blah, blah. And it's like this idea that if you were once this way, you have to stay that way forever, specifically when you're in the spotlight. And being that in modern times, we all have our own spotlight to some extent because of social media. It's like, what are you allowed to like? It's the idea of like a crafted image. And I think that um, this film is about how you have a crafted image and then your actual who you are. Mima, her crafted image was the idol, but who she actually was was someone with actual incentive and dreams and goals. Mm -hmm. So when she started to pursue those, those dreams and goals and stuff like that, it made people uncomfortable. And at points, she was uncomfortable too because like another theme of this movie is like the male gaze and stuff like that. You have the um, men who often are in charge of the roles and stuff that she has, she has to do. Yeah, the photographer who, like, made her go out of her comfort zone and take certain pictures and whatnot. And mm -hmm. what do you say? It's telling that her big break in this movie was supposed to be a scene where she was getting raped, where it's kind of like, and um, where it's kind of like, why is that, you know, her big break? Why is that the scene that she had to agree to in order to become taken seriously or be taken seriously as the actress that she wanted to be? And that also was kind of like, traumatizing for her because that's where you start to see again more of those match cuts more of those is this what's really happening or are we in the movie is this what's you know really going on and that's where she starts to see the idle version of herself running around outside of um like the picture or whatever and just like it feels like it's stalking her so like it's following her because I think even for herself it's hard for her to move from you know being this idol version of herself to being a different version, but it's kind of like who she is is probably somewhere in the middle. And it's like taken from one extreme to another extreme where it was like, she was completely innocent. And, you know, some creeps probably still sexualized her to she's completely sexualized and taking like nude photos and stuff and is feeling pressured to do so, even if that's not necessarily what she wanted to do, but she knows like, Maybe this is what I have to do to be taken seriously as an, as actress, an actress, which t says a lot, again, about even though it's an animation, you can see those parallels to real life where you had people who had, like, countdowns to when, like, Britney Spears turned 18 or countdown to when these people turned 18. It's like, that's so creepy. Super creepy. It's so creepy that you're waiting for these moments. So that's like, now I can sexualize them and it'd be okay. And you don't really take into account, again, that person behind 
the screen behind the song behind whatever they're feeling because they are still a real person yeah and sadly i think that um her like being visited by herself was kind of her being unable to separate her own crafted image versus who she actually yeah, really is was. Mm -hmm. because similar to what we say about like modern days people have their avatar online and then they have them real selves behind the scenes but after a point, if you keep playing your avatar for so long, you're going to be, it's hard to separate what you actually want to do versus what you actually, like what you actually want to do for yourself versus what's actually good for your brand. Like the crafted image versus. Yeah. Like some people have to live their brand 24 seven. And that's when it becomes like, who am I really? Like, am I this person who is always like selling stuff or like everywhere I go, like if you want to travel just to have fun, but you remember, oh, I'm um, a social media influencer, so I got to take pictures. Right. Oh, I can't be seen drinking this because my competitive brand is that. It, hard, it becomes hard to separate the reality from, from the the virtually created you. Yeah. And I think this film, even though it existed before that, um, you see a little bit with the internet. Because you have the, the meme room, the person who knows, yeah. or her stuff, and she knows she's not doing this, but someone, and I think that also makes her uncomfortable too because yeah. these, this person is speaking as her saying I'm uncomfortable doing X, Y, and Z. And maybe we don't really ever know if it really was her or not, but I feel like we're supposed to understand that it wasn't her. And I yeah. think this movie's up for interpretation though. Like you could come away from this movie thinking that maybe she really was a character in her movie, uh, in that film. And she was just projecting all of this out to the world to make herself feel comfortable with what happened to her. Mm -hmm. Or you could take away that she really was a star and she really did have these stalkers and all these bad things were really going on around yeah. her. I would say that um, for the Mima's Room bit, that um, she began, she remember, there was points where she was just, re she did not want to go out. So she was just reading the Mima's Room and she's like, oh, that's what I did today. This is what I did today. Because she was starting to internalize what whoever was typing that was doing. She was like making, she, it was so deep for her that someone else saying they're living her life began to take precedent over her actual life. And... Like you said, there, this movie's up to a lot of interpretations. I think, I think a good portion of it was real, and we're, the next movie we're going to talk about has a very similar theme, where it's like they utilize the filmmaking and the um, dialogue and stuff like that to have parallels to her real life. But then you becomes it becomes hard to separate like what is real and what isn't real. So at that point, I was like, that's that's what drew me in. I was like, this man is a very unique filmmaker because he's able to utilize a style that you don't often see utilized today mm -hmm. and again i think one live action film that it would uh behoove us to mention is related to this or it was inspired by this is black swan which was like very critically received well um where you have the natalie portman character who is kind of like in competition with someone else and she starts to you know, see things, see herself and not really know what's real versus what's fake. But I feel like Perfect Blue is kind of a, a better version of that. And I, again, think that it's because it's in the animation form. I really think that in this case, being animated lent itself to um, being able to tell the story in a way that you can't with live action. And I think that having a live action version that's similar to it helps you see that sometimes animation can be the right way to go with something. With that being said, let's dive into Satoshi Kon's second film, which is Millennium Actress, which released in 2001. The synopsis is, 
A TV interviewer and his cameraman meet a former actress and travel through her memories and career. So, Millennium Actress actually became my favorite film of his after rewatching it again yesterday because I haven't seen it in a pretty long time. But after rewatching it, I realized that the enjoyment and the level, I feel like it was his most con film, if that makes sense. I feel like the elements of what makes his films unique were all kind of like heightened to the highest level in this movie. And then the payoff, like the payoff in the end to me just was like, okay, this is a next level film to me. But um, how did you feel about it? I I really liked it. Um, I think it probably is tied for my first favorite, um, along with Perfect Blue. I think Perfect Blue is just like so relevant to now that, and it's like the fact that he was able to make it then is um, kind of it's kind of like he had foresight in a way, with kind of like knowing the internet would probably change how the people see things. Um, so the fact that it just kind of has become more relevant adds to my enjoyment to it. Uh, Millennium Actress, I feel like was like a very different film, but also the concept of it, which they kind of leave until the very last line. And I kind of want to spoil it because I want to talk about it in the context of the spoiler. I think that makes the film different, which is pretty much she, the actress found a key. She met a um, painter who gave her a key and said, like, find me after the war. I believe it's supposed to be World War II that's going on. Yeah, let's, says, let's give a little background into that. Okay, yeah. So this film takes place during World War well, a little bit before World War II, during World War II, and then the preceding events after World War II. And during the, um, during the war, you had, like, a lot of political activists and stuff like that who were strictly anti-war. But what we don't, we see some of it, but remember, the Japanese government was very, um, Strict back then. Remember, they were on the same side as the the Axis powers, so they were on the same side as the Nazis, the um, Mussolini and stuff like that. So they were very, very strict, and any kind of political dissent was killed at, like, killed quickly. So the main character of this film's name is Chiyoko, and she meets a man one day who is running away from the authorities, and this man is a painter and a political activist. Not a dangerous person at all. Like, he was just someone who was anti-war, anti-imperialism. And uh, they mentioned it a little bit, but this was during the time where Japan was invading China. And he was someone who was specifically against the Japanese invasion of China. So, being that he was a political activist, the Japanese government was after him. So, one day while she's just walking through the streets, she runs into this man. And he runs away from the authorities. And when the authorities come question her, she points them in the wrong direction, which then causes her to go check on the man and see what's wrong with him. So at the house, when's, what was the store, right? At the store that her family owned, she then meets this man and like, he has like a, a injury and she helps like fix his injury and helps him out. And they begin to talk. So he then tells her that after the war, he wants to just go like paint and this is something that really sticks with her because she sees this idea and this guy who's like, just, he has a simple goal, which is just peace and to paint. So that's just like a little background of what was taking place around the movie. So what were you saying before that? Yeah. So he gives her a key uh, and says, this is for like the most important lock. Can you figure out what it is essentially? And then he leaves. He has to leave. Um, so she holds onto this key literally for her entire life. 
or for a portion of her life, she loses it, retires, and then the, what takes place is an interview from um, a person who's creating a documentary about her life, and he brings her that key. And that kind of, that key is kind of like the catalyst for a lot of her life. And at the very end of the movie, she says, you know, loving him wasn't the, what was the exact line? It wasn't like, it was like loving him wasn't the reason for, um, it wasn't me trying to find him. It was like the journey to finding him. Yeah. So to me, what really resonated about it was actually that very final line of the movie where again, she got this key from this guy, kept it for her whole life and kind of kept it in hopes of meeting or you think throughout the movie that she keeps it in hope of meeting him again. She's kind of constantly chasing him. And it kind of seems like you're chasing a dude you knew for one day and it's been like 30 years. Um, why are you still chasing him? So the guy who was mentioned, he gives her a key and he kind of was like, this key is for the most important thing in my life. Can you guess what it is? She never really finds out. Um, she keeps the key for her whole life. At one point, she loses it. And then when the filmmaker comes to make a documentary about her and her life, he brings the key back to her. And you see that the key is a uh, ongoing kind of motif throughout the movie. It kind of stays with her no matter where she goes. And you always wonder, or everyone around, around her wonders what it is. And you see she's constantly chasing this man. And when you're watching the movie throughout the whole time, you're kind of like, she just met this man for one day. Why is she chasing him so hard? Um, you know, she should move on with her life, and she never does. But in the end, the very last line, right before she passes away, she says, after all, it was a chase I really loved. And I think that kind of reframes the whole movie because it's not really her trying to find this man. It's her chasing this man. It was the fact that she's constantly looking for him. So it's like not that he's the prize. It's kind of like the chase is the prize. And also... The fact that, again, I think the chase is what led her to all of the places she got to go. So all of the films she got to be in, she would have never went to um, Manchuria if not for chasing him. And she would have never become an actress. And you could tell that she pulled from the fact that she didn't know where this man was in order to, like, act in these roles. Because I think they were like, at first she wasn't very good. And then she started to pull from that feeling and then she got better and better yeah. and better. This actually um, reminds me of a quote. Well, let me not say reminds me of a quote. I just looked up a quote about journey and destination. But this is a Drake quote. And it says, sometimes it's the journey that teaches you a lot about your destination. And I think essentially that's what this movie boils down to. Is that this man was an idea. She didn't know the man. She didn't even know his face that well. He was just an ideal of someone who, despite all the trauma and persecution he's going through he still has a goal of peace um wanting to paint like that was his final goal and i think in her chase of this man she learned about herself what she wants to do what like film she loved filmmaking like she was genuinely in love with being an actress and the idea of chasing this man became tied to her being able to give the best performances that she can mm -hmm. so as i like i forgot the final quote in the line after not watching it for so long but after rehearing it, it's like, oh, that changes the whole framing of the movie. Because like you said, you think, like, you barely knew this man. Like, he was just someone that you saw for a night. Y'all had, like, a more small connection. And this you're going to spend your whole life chasing him. But I think that he was just kind of a catalyst for her 
to per- continue to pursue her go- to pursue her goals. It's like once you have a once you find a reason to like go after what you want to go, sh- that helps you continue to pursue tough goals. Because she had a tough dream, which actress. is to be a big actress. Mm-hmm. She was like pro- one of the most famous actresses in um the golden age, the golden age of Japan. And Satoshi Kon actually based her on a real actress called Setsuko Hara, who was a really popular Japanese actress at the time. And he utilized um, her to represent just the modern, the actress at the, of the golden age. And I think that um, that allowed her to be, like I said, the best actress that she could be. And th- this movie has a lot of elements to it. Yeah. Like, it's really, like, you have her... Then you have the um, male character who was his, who was her biggest fan, and he wanted to um, meet her for so long. And when he finally got the chance to interview her, he was so into her work that when we so an element that they use is that they would utilize the movies. It's so, it's a hard thing to describe. They would utilize the movies to drive the actual plot along, but you didn't know what was a movie and what was the actual plot. So at times she would be like chasing the man in 1948, but then it would cut to her as a princess in the feudal era of Japan, still chasing a man. But it's like, are you chasing the man in real life or are you chasing the man in the movie? And I think that that's, again, I think that's what drove her performances. The fact that she was chasing a man in real life is a lot what allowed her to chase a man in these movies and be so believable. And I also think that I, one thing I loved was because it kind of confused me at first. I really liked the fact that they took the um, male lead, I guess, in a way. His name was Genya and the cameraman. And they put them in all of the scenes. So at first it was a little confusing. I'm like, is this a movie? Is this really her childhood? Is this really what's going on? Or is this um, like uh, not real? And I think when you start going into like, feudal Japan and you know older times that she wouldn't have been alive in then it's like okay this is easier to see that it's a movie but when it's kind of existing in a time period that she was really around for that's when it becomes a little bit more confusing um but again it was really about the love of film because you could tell that Genya loved her as an actress that he memorized the line of specific characters in the movies and then he kind of was like entered into the scene and this camera is sitting here like, why did I come to film this? Like, (laughs) you're sitting here acting with her. She's acting. Because they had that one scene where she was like riding the horse and he's like screaming the name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, it's just so people can understand because I think it's kind of hard to like describe. Like, we've seen the movie so we might be thinking we're explaining it better than we are. That's true. It's like, Say an actress, like give me an actress, just any actress. Viola Davis. Say like Viola Davis. She's married, right? Mm -hmm. So say she does a love film. And in order to get the best performance out of her love film, she envisions the actress as her actual husband. So she, instead of like seeing the actor across from you, like she's acting with Brad Pitt, she's not going to see Brad Pitt. She'll see her husband and is able to transform him into her husband. So she's not no longer acting. She's actually saying something that's genuine to her. And I think that's kind of what the woman in the um, movie was doing because there was that one scene where she was arguing with her mother. And we see her arguing with her mother about what were they arguing? Oh, about her getting married. Yeah, and her just still chasing and, that man. And her chasing that man. And she's like, I'm going to, this is what I want to do. I want to continue to chase this man. And then it cuts to them on set and she's talking to an actress. Mm-hmm. So it's like the her real life um, arguments with her mother parallels to her movie role arguments with her mother 
But to her, it's kind of one in the same because that's what allows her to get the best performance. And that's a very unique thing about Satoshi Kon's style is that he's able to show that and utilize that element like a lot of people aren't able to. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't think of a movie that does something similar. Um, Even like when there was a scene when it went from feudal Japan, because essentially I, I think that, again, this is like up for probably interpretation or maybe there's a whole article about why it's called Millennium Actress. But Millennium is a thousand years. Oh, yeah, that's essentially And yeah. I think that's because in her very first movie or one of her first movies, it was supposed to be like she was cursed in her first movie to never fall in love with the man that she's chasing throughout all her other movies and she can't fall in love or she can't find him for a thousand years. She's like destined for a tragedy for a thousand years. So I think that's why it's called Millennium Actress. Um, so there's like one scene where it's like in feudal Japan and then she's getting pulled by like a rickshaw and it seems like it goes into like the 1800s where it's kind of more of like the European style like the English style of dress and everything and then from there she's like riding a bike and it's on the in the um maybe later like early 1900s or late 1800s style and I think the way it flows from one style to another is something that you would you could accomplish in live action but I think it would be a little bit more difficult to have like as beautiful flow into that um into that vision or into that look and then from there it goes then jumps back into her real life and i think that's where it starts to get difficult because you're jumping into her real life and i'm assuming it's supposed to be post you know a bombing of the area so yeah, well they did have that scene where they actually showed the um bombings that was actually real yeah remember they went to the shelters mm-hmm. and stuff like that and one thing this movie does pretty well is it puts the war it's a it's a character in the film like the war and everything that affected japan through the war it's a pretty strong anti-war film. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it shows you that this woman had to live her life despite During the, the war. war. So she, she wasn't really focused too much on the war. She was focused on finding the love of her life and the love, like the love of the journey of her life. But we still see the impact of the war in the background because during World War II, there was a lot going on in Japan. And similar to the U.S., like during war times, things change for everybody. With that being said, let's move on because we could talk about each of these movies could have a podcast of their own. So let's move on to Tokyo Godfather before we go on a tangent any longer about Millennium Actress. So Tokyo Godfather is his third film and the synopsis is on Christmas Eve, three homeless people living on the streets of Tokyo discover a newborn baby amongst the trash and sets out to find his parents. A pretty good simple premise after reading the um synopsis. I will say that this is my third favorite film of his it's a really good holiday film it's a really heartwarming film i would say and i think that it has a really 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 strong cast of characters like i think this one focuses on the characters a lot in the sense that you have three characters who each have their own reason for being homeless and as we watch the movie it doesn't really go like other than for the girl it doesn't really go into too much flashback but as we move throughout the city of tokyo we encounter different aspects of these people's past that shows why they led to them being homeless. And I think this is a great movie for anyone to watch because all too often we just see homeless people as like backgrounds to the city that we live in. We don't see them as human beings. We don't see them as people who deserve the attention that we give them. Like if a homeless person like asks like, hey, can I get a dollar? People just usually just look at their phone and ignore them. But this movie, I think, shows you that everyone has a story of their own 
and people end up in certain situations by things that are sometimes out of their control or by things that might be a regret that led them there. And I really appreciate that about this film because it shows you that everyone is the main characters of their own life and that these people, while the rest of the world saw them as just like trash on the side of the road, since we were seeing things from their perspective, we learned to love these characters. Yeah, I 100% agree. I feel like all too often people easily dismiss homeless people um, and kind of look down on them and not realize like these are people too and they just happen to be in a situation that is unfortunate. Um, But, and I think that this film by focusing on three characters who are homeless kind of give you a backstory into their lives and show you that again, these are still people too. Um, and I think to me, this is his most straightforward movie. It also, I really enjoyed the fact that besides like giving light into like um, the lives of three homeless people, you're also seeing, it's a movie about family and the family you choose versus the family you're born into and how even, I think it's also about like regret in a way or not regret, but how, your perception, again, how you're your own main character. So your perception of what someone might think of you might not be ring true to what really would happen. So like, for example, the young girl who ran away from home because she stabbed her father, she was scared that he would arrest her. And I think her dad was just like, I want my daughter back home. Or the father who ran away from his wife and his daughter, he was like, they're going to hate me and have to run because I have debts. And they're just like, I want my dad and I want my husband so it's kind of like you put these ideas in your head and you could be your own worst enemy sometimes but also you see how these three people found each other on the street and made like their own little makeshift family so you have the teenage girl the transgender woman and the um homeless man and they all kind of become like this makeshift family and they find a baby and the transgender woman is the one who really wants to keep the baby but I also think that like while you have this idea of makeshift family you also have the idea of like what is the best thing to do for someone? So no matter like what you want, what you want might not necessarily always be the best for someone. So like the transgender woman wanted to keep the baby at first until she realized like this, I can't, I can't keep this baby. You know what I mean? Like I can't take care of it. We're living on the street. Let's take it to the police. And I think that's where it shows that like while you can care for someone, you also have to like make the decisions that sometimes might not be the best for you, but could be the best for them. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, like you said, it's about families because when you look at the characters, each character ended up the place they are by totally different reasons. Like Miyuku, who, Miyuki, who is the um, youngest of the three, who was the one that stabbed her father because she felt like he was being neglectful and stuff like that. She made a stupid kid's mistake. But afraid of the consequences, she ran away and then she started living on the streets. You have um, you have Jin, who was a father who had a wife and a daughter. But because of debts and a problem with alcohol, he left his family and ended up on the streets as well. And then you have Hannah, who is the trans character who was born into the system. She was a foster kid and she said that one of the reasons why she didn't want to give um, the baby to the police is because the negative impact that the foster system has, foster system had on her 
she was like, yo, I'd rather this baby live with us on the streets than go into that system. So I think that it shows you the different avenues that could lead people to where they where they are in terms of homelessness or in down on their luck without judging the people for getting there. And that's what I really enjoyed about this film because the film was, um, it was a great Christmas film. Like you went from scene to scene that all related to the, the baby. They pretty much like the baby was like essentially. It's like a nativity story. Kind yeah. Of. But it was also like a good luck charm. It's like everywhere they go, they would find connections to their past. For instance, there was one scene where there was this man who was trying to move a car, but he got stuck under the car. So the our trio then comes to help him push the car off of him. And we learn that he is like this Yakuza boss. So the um man invites them back to his daughter's wedding. So once they get there, the man Jin, who was the drunk who lost his family, sees a man at the the wedding who is the man that not put him in debt but was in the one who had the who was the one that was collecting debt from him so he wanted to hurt this man but then the man gets shot by this spanish this um spanish man who was infiltrating the wedding i'm assuming that it's an enemy of the gang or something like that and then that spanish man kidnaps miyuki and takes him to his house with his daughter that was his daughter, right? Or sister? No, that was his wife. Remember the Spanish man with his at the house? Okay. So the Spanish man takes Miyuki back to his house with his sister, who is also had who also has a baby. So Miyuki earlier in the scene lost the food for the baby, so the baby was hungry and crying. But since this woman recently had a baby, she was able to feed both of them. And then with that woman, I love one thing I loved about this scene is that they spoke Spanish, but they didn't translate what they were saying. So you kind of had a, like you were in a situation like Miyuki who only spoke Japanese and this um, woman who only spoke Spanish, but because they were, they had, they had enough of a connection where they were able to understand each other through other means. So they were literally sitting there sharing pictures of their past and their photos and stuff like that. And this allowed Miyuki to realize that she is where she's at because she, she stabbed her father. So they showed the flashback. But she's having some regret because she misses her family now. And she, this is making her question whether or not she should still be in this situation. So this is just an example of how this baby that they found and the pursuit of looking for the parents led them to different things to discover more about themselves. Mm -hmm. Even um, you have the... When the trans woman got sick and went to the hospital... What's her name again? Hannah. Yeah, so when Hannah got sick and went to the hospital, you see that they have to pay the hospital bill, and he uses his last, what, 30,000 yen that he was saving for his daughter, and the nurse that he gives it to happens to be his daughter. And, you know, I, I liked that story that Hannah told where it was, like, the blue devil and the red devil and how Hannah was sacrificing herself in order to allow Miyuki no, no, not Miyuki, the man, to allow Jen to ha have a chance at a relationship with his daughter again. Because um, uh, she knew that was important to him. And I also think that it's kind of like a series of coincidences in how the fact that they could all see themselves within other people that they met 
Um, so you had the man who his wife just lost her baby, and that's the one who stole the baby, but they didn't know that she stole the baby. So they give the baby to her without thinking anything of it, and the man is like, I don't care, I don't care. I'm, she's better off without me. Not knowing that this woman is, like, really struggling mentally and doesn't know how far she will go to pretend that this baby is hers, although it really isn't. And you kind of see that throughout the climax of the film. And I think it's really, like, in the end, the fact that the parents of the baby are like, we don't care that these people are homeless. We still want to make them this baby's godfather because of all the things they did throughout the night to keep my child safe. Yeah. Um, and even, like, the homeless man they met along the way, the one who was, I guess, an alcoholic and a gambler as well. So he was kind of a glimpse into... Jin's future if he didn't get his life together um but he gave them his little baggie of stuff and it happened to have the winning lottery ticket in there and you don't know if you know they, they leave it at that point so you don't know if they ever find it or what happens but it's kind of like showing that throughout the course of this night they kind of had like a series of happy accidents that allows them to hopefully have a better life even at the very end you see that it's Miyuki's dad, who is the cop that's helping them. So now she's yeah. finally reunited with her that father. Ending. That was a great ending right mm -hmm. there. Because it's like, he just walks into the room, and he's like, Miyuki? And that's, it ends there. And I think that's a very effective way. Because you could have continued the story on, you could have shown her and her father reuniting, but they, you know what's going to happen. Because after all the events of the night, you already have this idea of, like, things are going to work out for these characters. Mm -hmm. So after that, it was like... Let's not continue. Like, all right, it's like a Lord of the Rings ending where it's like, <laughs> it ends, and then it ends, and then it ends. This movie just had that one ending where it's like, they're in a hospital. They're about to question the people who um saved the baby. And then you see the father who's on the case, and it ends. Like, that's, to me, a really, really effective ending. But, yeah, I think that, um, like you said, the parallels between different characters. Like, you see the parallel between um Jin and the older man who was in the tent. You see parallels with like um, Miyuki and the woman who was at the um, the Spanish woman in her brother's house, and who was Hannah's parallel? I'm trying to remember her parallel in this movie. I don't know. I know we saw her family. That again, like another yeah. chosen family. That was kind another of chosen thing. family, which is mm -hmm. you see a lot like in the LGBT community because since a lot of people like don't accept them, they have to create their own family unit. Mm -hmm. So she created her family at the. Um, the drag bar because she was a drag queen back in the day mm -hmm. and this person who was at the bar insulted her so she attacked him and because uh, Hannah was my favorite character in the movie I think she was um she was the most like um, the heart of the movie yeah the heart of the film the one that drove the things forward kind of and she was the matriarch of the film like she's the one that kept the family together when things were getting tough mm -hmm. um Miz Miyuki would ins I like the, the, and like, it was actually, when did this movie come out? It came out in 2003. It was a really good representation of, um, a trans character for back then. Like, it wasn't super insulting or anything like that, which you would have seen. Like, I was watching, um, It Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is a show oh, around the same time. It's always sunny as well. Oh like, my God. It's terrible. <laughs> I think they're purposely terrible. That's terrible true, though, too. But, but this movie was actually a really good representation because they didn't really, like, try to have people, like, vilify her for, being a trans character. She was just a trans character. Mm -hmm. Secondary to just being a good character. It wasn't like the whole re the whole character did not revolve around that concept. She was just like a great character. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really appreciate about it. And Jin and Miyuki are also both great characters as well. And Miyuki, like, 
she stabbed her father, but you still felt bad for her, if that makes sense. Like, you could have, I feel like a worse director would have made you be like, oh, this girl's annoying. Like, she stabbed her father, just go home. But you were kind of like, you understood, like, you didn't really get why she ran away. It was kind of a childish thing to do. I feel like, but I feel like, I mean, I don't think the concept of her thinking that he was going to arrest her made sense. But I feel like in a moment, you just stabbed your parent and you're panicking. You don't mm-hmm. know what to do. And I she's think also to her. Young. And she's young. She's like yeah. a, a young teenager. And you don't know how long she's been out there. It could have been two years ago. It could have been six months ago. It could have been a month ago, you know? Um, so she was young when she did that. And I think for her, it was just, I'm scared and I ran away. And her father probably could have been like, it's fine. I mean, not, maybe that's fine, but you know, I can get help. We can get you help if this is how you're feeling, if this is how we're all feeling. But in her head, it was like fight or flight, and she ran away. Um, and I think, again, that's kind of like the idea that you're the main character in your own story, where you're not really thinking of what someone, logically of what someone else might want to do. You're kind of like catastrophizing, and that's what she did. She catastrophized. Her dad was going to arrest her, although he probably really was just going to be like, let's figure out what to do, because clearly if something drove you to stab me, then... Something's really wrong here. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So, yeah. Final thoughts on Tokyo Godfather. It was, like you said, it was his most straightforward film. It was the, so the Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfather are only two films that are not based on um, an adaptation. Because Perfect Blue and Paprika are both based on books. So, this is a story that he wrote on his own. And as a film that's made by, like, if I saw this one, I wouldn't say this is a Satoshi Kon film. The elements are very Satoshi Kon, but not the style. But I still think it's a really, really great film. It's my third favorite film of his. And I think all his films are superb. Like, he's one of those directors who's like, saying this one is your least favorite of his, not saying it's a bad movie. They're all great films. So this being my third favorite is not that it was like, I enjoyed it less than the others. I just think that the elements of the other films that he did speak to his style as a director a little bit more. And this one doesn't really speak to his style as a director. But it shows how great of a writer that he is, that he's able to take characters that no one would ever give a second look and turn them into, like, stars of this film. And I really, really appreciated that about this. Yeah, I think that I agree. This was, I mean, this one was my least favorite. And least is, like, a strong word because I feel like they're all so good that it's kind of hard to be like, this is my least favorite. I think I just—it's more so, like, I enjoyed the others more, more so than, than this one was had you know like a lot of flaws or something if that makes sense yeah so it's kind of like ranking good amongst good it's not like final destiny or or like other movies where it's like one can be much much lower than the others and then the others are like up top this one's kind of like everything's up top but it's just very close ranking yeah it's like amongst everything is above a nine deal metric so where are we gonna find out which ones Mm -hmm. are where yeah so yeah so his last film, well, his last full-length film that he produced was Paprika, which came out in 2006. When a machine that allows therapists to enter their patients' dreams is stolen, all hell breaks loose. Only a young female therapist, Paprika, can stop it. Weird synopsis. But, so, essentially, there was this machine called the DC Mini invented by this doctor named Tokita. This machine you place on your head, and it allows people to enter and see your dreams so you have a doctor named dr chiba who is also someone who works on the project for the dreams but then we learn that someone is intentionally 
entering people's dreams and creating havoc. So Dr. Chiba, it's confusing because Chiba has this persona named Paprika who is able to move through dreams at her own will, which a lot of people aren't actually able to do. So Dr. Chiba has the ability to control Paprika and her dreams, but they're kind of two different people. Like they're the same person, but they each have their own personalities, motivations, goals, and stuff like that. So that's, um, I enjoyed this film. It was my least favorite film of his because I think it was the most confusing, like knowing what's a dream and what isn't and stuff like that. And what what the particular character's motivations are. It's still a great film. It still does these things better than 99% of the movies out there. I just think it does it a little bit worse than his other films, but visually it's the most, you know, Melanie actress to me is my own, like to personal taste is my favorite visually because of like the backgrounds and stuff like that. But I think this one has the most standout visual style of all his films. Like, um, Inception is a movie that borrows heavily, 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 heavily from this film. Like another, um, The Matrix and Ghost in the Shell is a comparison I would give to this and Inception. Inception. In the sense that it's a movie about infiltrating dreams and what the dream world can do. But what makes this one way more unique is the animation mediums allows you to do a lot more visually to to portray a dream world than Inception was. Because Inception had like the buildings folding in on top of themselves and spinning hallways. But outside of that, it didn't really have much else that was dreamlike. This movie has everything in it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that in part you're supposed to be confused as to what's reality and what dream because as you get towards the end of the movie, the whole point is that the dreams start bleeding into the actual reality. Um, and I think the villain's motivation is a little bit difficult to understand, I guess, is that he wants to feel whole again or whatever and he feels like he could do that he couldn't walk um and so he wanted to he wants to do that and that's kind of his main motivation and then you have another like kind of his main minion and the main minion's motivation is that he's in love with paprika or um chiba is her name he's in love with chiba and he wants her but she doesn't want him so that's his motivation for kind of sabotaging the dream world but I agree. I think that why I like this movie so much is because it allows you to fully dive into like a dreamlike state. You know, in Inception, I feel like, because that's the, the nearest movie in terms of dreams, that's why I'm using that as a comparison. Um, that one feels more like the dreams are grounded in kind of what reality is. And I guess that's because it's kind of like a dream heist. So they have to like stay in the real world. I don't know. But in this one, you have people who are dreaming of being um, toys and people who are dreaming of being butterflies. And a man is half tree. And I feel like that's what dreams really are like. Dreams can be whatever you want them to be. Or not what you, I mean, whatever you want them to be, but whatever you dream of, you know what I mean? Like, you can't control your dream, so it can be as outrageous as possible. And I feel like with the animation medium, you can do whatever. You can achieve that versus with the um, versus with the real life or live action, it's harder to do that because that would require so much special effects that sometimes special effects don't age well versus uh, where it's fully animated, it's, it doesn't, it's kind of ageless, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's also a film that is another, like, three of his last four films that we talked about were homages to films. 
this is another movie that's an homage to the film because you had the um the primary um one of the protagonists who is Toshima Konagawa, who is the um male detective. And he was someone who he was a former filmmaker, right? His dream was to be a filmmaker. Yeah, his dream was to be a filmmaker, but after an accident with his friend, he fell out of love with films and he stopped seeing movies. But much of his dreams were scenes in movies. So we went through Tarzan. We had a um, he had a dream where he was like an action hero on a train, and this one was another movie that used Satoshi Kon's style to like utilize the cuts, utilize the um, editing style to like bleed dreams together. It works really well for this movie because, like you said, it's a dreamlike state because a dream isn't always linear. It's kind of like you could be one place and then you be another place. You know, how did I get here? I don't know, but this is the dream. And I think that um, like the intro to this film was a really strong intro because we saw him like. He was like in a circus and then he wakes up and he's swinging through um, a jungle as Tarzan and he hits somebody over the head and he's like in a old timey Western kind of festival and it just works really, really well. And I definitely think that um, this movie definitely utilizes his style and it was also a great love film. I feel like this movie was like an undercover love film though because you didn't really think about the love connections or anything like that throughout the movie. But as many of his films do, the ending payoff is what makes the movie great because you know um yeah dr chiba atsuko and dr tonika who were not two people you would usually see together in a movie at all but because they both had this similar draw like she was someone who was a little bit more serious and he was very childlike but they kind of complemented each other and he was a very like overweight character like morbidly obese and she was like an attractive um doctor so usually movies, like, the conception is that, oh, the attractive doctor will get another attractive doctor and they will be together. Or she would have ended up with the detective. Yeah, or she would have older, but... Yeah, but they don't matter. In, in movies, in yeah, movies, they don't yeah. care. But because they had more complementary um, personalities, they ended up together in the end. I really did appreciate that about it because it wasn't at the forefront, but it was still, like, when you watch the movie again, you're like, oh, okay, I see what the connections that they're making here and how this is an undercover love movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and then it kind of was like, they didn't explain it away or anything like that. It was just kind of like, she's in love with him and that's it. And now they're married. Um, I also, again, I just think that the way they were able to bleed dreams and reality together was super interesting, especially towards the end when it was like dreams and reality are literally in the same realm. And we have to figure out how to separate that realm from the dream realm again so that it's kind of like the world is back to normal because when you had a little doll thing and it would like shake or whatever I was like this is so creepy <laughs> like it was just really and I think that even the way you had the main the um main protagonist detective when he had to push through his dream to get into another dream it's kind of like that concept of having to break out of you know your own mind and break out of this kind of box that you're in because you can see something else going on and that was paprika's doing so i kind of didn't fully understand how paprika's character works like why was uh chiba the only one with uh avatar in the dream world and maybe that was a part of the design of the dc mini to like allow someone to go in there and kind of help guide people or help control what was going on in the dreams maybe that's why she was able to have that avatar she was chosen for that um but Paprika was able to be, uh show him you know on the main screen she was in torment and he was able to then 
break free from that singular dream. And that's pretty much what the villain was doing. He was breaking into other people's dreams, taking it over. And then eventually that bled out into the real world. And he was literally destroying Japan in order for him to have what his dream was again, which was power. And I don't know. I think it was just an overall interesting concept because he was a powerful man in the real world, but he wanted more power. As much power as he had, he still had this issue that he could not, like, no matter how much power he had, he still could never get the ability to walk Walk again. again. Mm -hmm. And in the dreams, he had, not only did he have more power, but he also had the ability to walk. So I think that um, there was some kind of, there was an insecurity in that for this man, that no matter how much power he had, there was some things about himself that he couldn't fix, which could not only just mean the legs, but other aspects of himself as well. Um, so with that, do you have any final thoughts about Paprika? Yeah, like I said, it was a, still a superb film. Um, it's a movie I think I have to watch again because thematically, I'm still trying to feel like there's themes of love, there's themes of society and stuff like that. But I want to see it one more time to kind of get all of it, to solidify some of my own concepts, read up on a little bit of what it is. And like it's like a puzzle trying to figure out what this might mean and what that might mean. But overall, I think I really did enjoy the film. Um, so do you want to introduce the last, it's not really, a, it's a short film, but I, you want to go into it? Yeah. So you don't spell Ohio like Ohio, the state. I look, we just go through, go through it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the last film that Satoshi Kon did before he unfortunately passed in 2010 was a short film called Ohio, which means good morning in Japanese. So this short film follows a woman as she becomes fully awake and it's a pretty, like, the film is, what, about a minute long? Yeah, it's super so short. So just Google Ohio, which is spelled O-H-A-Y-O, and you can look it up on YouTube and watch it. It's literally a minute long. But this film is pretty much about a woman waking up to get her day started. But it utilizes his, like, if someone asked me what is Satoshi Kon's style, this is what I would show them. Mm-hmm. I would show them this to be like, hey, this is a man who understands time and space in order to show what a character is feeling. So it kind of shows different versions of her in a ghost-like stake performing different actions. So like a version of her is brushing her teeth, a version of her is taking a shower, a version of her is watching the news, a version of her is waking up and stretching. But by the end of the film, they all come together to show that she's now fully awake. Yeah. Um, And I think that, again, I think that you're right. Like if anyone wanted to kind of have a quick intro without fully diving into one of his films this is a great short film to go and watch it's literally like a minute long maybe two minutes and it shows that feeling you feel when you're waking up and you're like not fully there yet but you're like almost there and then when you finally get there it's like okay I'm awake now and I think the way he does it again that animation is something you can't get if you were doing it in live, in action. live action. Or if you did, it or you look did, it would look CGI a little silly. Yeah. And it would look silly at that point. Um, yeah. But in this, is like you could get fully get the idea and it doesn't look silly. With that being said, let's close out this episode. So Toshi Kon was a very unique filmmaker and I would implore anyone who has any interest in animation. If you have interest and in filmmaking, film, yeah. you should check out his movies. Um, Ohio, give it a watch. It's literally a minute long. And what would you say the best one is like the best starter film of his? I would say the best starter film would probably be either Millennium Actress or Tokyo Godfather. I feel like they're the most straightforward. Yeah. I mean, Millennium Actress is not straightforward, but they're like the most accessible, I think, in a way. I agree. Um, 
but I would say watch all of like it's four films. Yeah. Um, they're all very good films. But if you're going to start, I would start with yeah, either Millennium Actress. I like Millennium Actress Actress films more like his other films in Tokyo Godfather does. So maybe that's like the best starting point if you're trying to get a general feel for like his other two films that are not Tokyo Godfather. Tokyo Godfather is kind of a unique outlier yeah. amongst the films, although it's still really well made. Yeah, I agree. I think um, I would say start with Millennium Actress because like you said, it's very approachable. It's a little bit more heartwarming and um, comforting than Perfect Blue is. But <laughs> yeah, a, lot a lot more, a lot more, yeah, yeah. Part of the blue is dark, but it still is. It utilizes the elements that make his films, uh, Satoshi Kon films. So, with that being said, thank you for listening to this episode of that Brooklyn Film Show. Like, subscribe, follow us on all our social media, and we will talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>